But if you have your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, for those of you who are visiting at Calvary Chapel, we go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We believe in just teaching God's Word and let God speak. We can't improve on what God has said. So we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 5 as we are quickly winding down this wonderful epistle of Paul, and I've entitled this chapter, Freedom in Jesus Christ. How can you and I walk in victory? How can we walk in freedom in our relationship to Christ? Renald III was the Duke of Belgium, and on one particular occasion, he got into a conflict with his brother, and his brother overcame him. And he had a unique way of imprisoning his brother. He put him in a room, and there were windows, and there was a small door there, and he told his brother, you are free to leave this room anytime you want. The problem was, Renald was a very heavyset man, and he loved to eat. And so he couldn't fit through the door. And his brother knew that he loved food, and so what he did on a daily basis was, he gave him rich food, he gave him delicacies, And his brother sat in this room for 10 years because he was in bondage to his own appetites. On the one hand, he was free to escape anytime he wanted to. On the other hand, he could never leave because he was enslaved to food. At the end of 10 years, his brother died and Renald was finally released and he died shortly thereafter due to poor health. I think that's a good illustration of many Christians. Many Christians are free in Jesus Christ, but yet they walk in bondage. They don't have victory in their Christian life. And that's exactly what Paul is going to be talking about in Galatians chapter 5. How can you and I have victory in Christ? Now, if you remember, Paul here is arguing against the Judaizers. When he wrote this letter, he basically is combating this error that the Judaizers taught that salvation by faith alone in Christ is not sufficient enough. You must keep the law of Moses and you must be circumcised. And again, there was nothing wrong with the law of Moses, nothing wrong with circumcision. God instituted both of those in the Old Testament, but the false teachers, the Judaizers, were misusing the law as 1 Timothy chapter 1 says. And so if you look at the diagram up on the screen, you'll notice a breakdown. What he does here in the first four chapters of the book of Galatians is he argues theologically for this idea that we're justified, we're made right with God by faith alone. That's the first four chapters. It's more theological. He's laying the foundation. Now when we get to chapters five and six, the chapter we're in this morning, he's not arguing theologically, he's arguing practically. He's arguing ethically. He's telling us, based on the fact that we've been justified by faith, chapters 1 through 4, here is how we're to live out our Christian life. And I think the Apostle Paul gives us chapters 5 and 6, this practical ethical section, for two primary reasons. Number one, Paul is basically answering his critics. His critics were saying this, Paul, if you go around and you teach that people are saved by faith alone, that's going to be a license for sin. Because if all I got to do is believe in Jesus, then that basically promotes antinomianism, which means against the law. I can do whatever I want to do. And that mindset is still in our midst today. There are people that teach what is called hyper grace. We're under grace, and basically they abuse God's grace. And so Paul, I believe, is answering his critics, particularly the Judaizers, saying, no, 
Just because I teach salvation is by faith alone, it's not a license for sin. And then a second reason I think he's arguing in chapters 5 and 6 for the practicality of the Christian life is he's trying to show us that sanctification is a natural byproduct of justification. In chapters 1 through 4, he's argued for justification. Justification means God declares somebody no longer guilty of sin. He saves them by faith alone. That's what justification is. But what he's showing us in chapters 5 and 6, that sanctification is inseparably linked to justification. To say it another way, if a person claims that they're saved, if a person claims that they've been justified, but you don't see any evidence of sanctification in their life, spiritual growth, you have to question whether or not they've been saved. See, the church today is fertile ground for easy believism. There's a lot of people that sign a card, they pray a prayer, they walk an aisle, and they ostensibly come to faith in Jesus Christ, but the next 10, 15, 20 years, you don't see any fruit in their life. There's no desire for the things of God. And so we wonder, are they really saved? Ultimately, I don't know because I'm not privy to what's going on in their heart. God knows. But in the end, if you see no fruit, you got to question whether they've been justified. In fact, this diagram will help you visualize this. If you'll notice up on the screen, what Paul is arguing for in Galatians 1 through 4 is justification, the first four chapters. And he basically says faith alone is the root of salvation. It's faith plus nothing that equals salvation. He argues this in Romans and Galatians. In fact, when I was in Bible college, we took these two books together because they often mirror one another. Well, what he does in chapters 5 and 6 is he doesn't deal with justification. He deals primarily with sanctification. This is the fruit of justification. And by the way, that's what James is arguing for because people will say that James and Paul contradict one another. Because James says, we're not saved by faith alone. Paul says in Romans, we are saved by faith alone. So which one is true? Do they contradict one another? The answer is no. James is looking at salvation from a different perspective. And what James is saying is, if a person says they have faith, but they don't have fruit, he says their profession of faith may be false. It may be spurious, not true, not genuine. And so Paul writes chapters 5 and 6 practically because he wants to answer his critics that grace is a license for sin, and secondly, he wants to show us that sanctification is a natural byproduct of justification. Now, as we get into this chapter, I'm going to share with you four ways that you and I can be spiritually free in Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to look at the final point as to how to be free. The first way that you and I can experience freedom in Jesus Christ is we must stand on our freedom. We must stand. This involves being active. This involves being proactive. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, when we put on the armor of God, we must stand against the enemy. In other words, Christians are not to be passive. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Christ sets you free from sin and death. He sets you free from hell. He sets you free from the tyranny of sin. He says, therefore, keep standing firm in the present tense. You're to keep on standing firm. You're to plant your feet. You're to be rooted and do not be again subject to a yoke of slavery. Now, why would Paul be saying this to the Galatians? Well, they were tempted to go back into this false gospel that the Judaizers were espousing. Faith in Jesus is good, but it's not enough. 
You must keep the law of Moses and you must be circumcised. And he says, look, Christ set you free from that work salvation. Why are you going to go back? He says, you need to stand firm. I was reading this week about a man in Lando Lakes, Florida, which is outside of Tampa, Florida. He was in jail for a brief period of time and he finally served his time and he got out of jail. And when he went into the parking lot, he started looking at the different cars, trying to open the handle to see if a car door was open because he wanted to commit theft. This is right after he got out of jail. Well, unbeknown to him, there was an officer that was not on duty, and he saw the man and what he was doing, and he arrested him. He literally leaves the prison cell. He is set free, and then immediately he gets rearrested, and he goes back into jail, and his excuse was, well, I thought somebody was going to pick me up. That's his argument. And you know, that's a picture of what happens to us. Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. He sets us free from trying to keep the law in order to be saved. And what the Galatians were doing is even though they had been let out of jail, even though Jesus had unlocked the jail cell, as soon as they went out, the Judaizers were trying to get them to go right back into jail into slavery. And what this says to you and I is we got to stand firm on this doctrine that we're saved by faith alone. It's one of the core doctrines of Christianity. It is the article, Martin Luther said, by which the church stands or falls. Because if you and I compromise on that doctrine, we lead people into perdition. And so we've got to stand on this particular doctrine that we are saved by faith alone. And listen, this is why all the Ivy League schools in America that were once missionary training schools, many of them have gone apostate because of this very principle. They did not firmly plant their feet on the gospel and did not resist the assaults against salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by grace alone. Do you remember the movie Patriot, one of my favorite movies? My top movie is Rudy. You ever seen Rudy before? I love the movie Rudy. I probably watch it once a month and I cry at the end. Love the movie. But Patriot's one of my favorite ones. Do you remember during the movie when the British were lining up and so were the American soldiers, the Patriots? They formed a line and the order was this. You are not to break the line. You are to stand your ground. And when the enemy comes against you with their bayonets, when they come against you with uh, mortar and everything else, you're to stand your ground. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You're not to compromise. I was reading about a girl in Pakistan. She grew up in a home that was very, very poor, and she was a committed Christian. And one day she got a job offer from a Muslim family. This Muslim family in Pakistan was very wealthy, and so they hired her to cook and to clean in the house, and she was thrilled to get this job because it would help support her family. She wasn't married. She didn't have kids. It would support her parents, and so she took this job, and while she was working there for probably a month or two, the son of this Muslim family took notice of this Pakistanian Christian girl because she was beautiful and she was very mild manner. And so he developed a liking towards her. And so he went to his parents and he said to them, I would like to marry her. Could you arrange the marriage? And they said, okay. So they went to her and they said, our son would like to marry you. To which she said, I cannot marry him because I am a Christian and you are Muslim. Well, for the next two weeks, they pressured her to compromise and to become a Muslim. 
They put all this pressure on her, but you know what she did? She did what Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, she stood firm and she would not compromise the gospel, nor her testimony, nor her commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, of course, that angered the young man. And one day while she was alone, he pulled her into a room and he raped her. She decided to quit because she was obviously brokenhearted. You can imagine what she was going through. And before she went to the authorities to report him, the parents went to the authorities first, and they said that she stole from the house. And so she was arrested, and she was put into jail. And I thought, you know, Christians suffer for their faith, but this girl was willing to take a stand and not compromise her faith in Jesus Christ for Islam. And so it is with you and I. Paul says we got to stand on our freedom, not only doctrinally, but listen carefully, ethically and by our life. Because as Christians, we're going to be tempted sometimes to go back into our former manner of life or just to be complacent, to be spiritually lazy. You see, we face the pressure on a daily basis of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some days are worse than others, but the fact of the matter is we all face the pressure to want to go back to Egypt with the leeks, the onions, and the garlics. And you see, God has delivered us out of slavery. He has set us free, and God has given us power to overcome sin. You see, salvation is not only deliverance from the penalty of sin. The Bible says salvation is deliverance from the power of sin. We'll never reach entire sanctification in this life, but we do have power over sin. And Satan will buffet us. The world will buffet us. The flesh will buffet us. And listen, as life gets hard, as we go through difficulties and trials, sometimes we don't understand why God allows things. What happens is we're tempted to go back into our former manner of life, and we see this all the time. I was reading this week about a woman who was a prostitute. She was involved in this lifestyle. She filmed porn and everything else, and God saved her. She made a profession of faith. And shortly after her profession, probably a year later, she ended up going back into the lifestyle of filming pornography. Well, at some point, she said she was flying in a plane to film, and she said God spoke to her on the plane and said, I have more for you. You are my child. You are to stop this lifestyle. And she said right there on the plane, she immediately stopped, and now she is walking with Jesus Christ, she got married, she has a family, and she's doing what God called her to do. You see, we're all tempted, if we're not careful, to go back. And if not to go back, maybe to be lazy spiritually. See, in America, I think our temptation more is to just be spiritually complacent, to be spiritually lazy, to be a Sunday Christian only. Yeah, I'll pick up the Bible and read it here and there if it's convenient. You know, I got Jesus in the back of my pocket. I pull him out when I need him. See, that's not the Christianity and the discipleship that God is calling us to. God has set us free. In January 1st, 1868, you know with Abraham Lincoln, he made his famous Emancipation Proclamation. He declared slavery illegal. But here's what's interesting. Texas did not make the announcement until two years later. Even though he had declared that people were free in 1868, it was two years later that Texas made the announcement to all the slaves that they had been set free. And once the slaves found out, the account says that many of them began to cheer real loud, they began to ring bells, they created a ruckus because of the freedom that they now had. And what they did as a reminder 
of their slavery was they took a rope and they cut it into little pieces. And they took those pieces of rope and they gave it to each of the slaves and they said, this serves as a reminder that you were once in bondage, but now you have been set free. And you see, Jesus has announced our emancipation proclamation. It's right here. We have victory in Jesus Christ, but here's the thing. We got to stand on that victory. We got to walk in it. And we got to remind ourselves that in Christ, we are victorious over the penalty of sin. We are victorious over the power of sin. And one day, we're going to be victorious over the presence of sin when we stand in the presence of God. And so if you want spiritual freedom, here's the question. Are you standing firm? Or are you equivocating? And I'll tell you what will cause you to equivocate is if you got one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity, if you're not in the word, you're not in prayer, you're not in fellowship, what will happen is you will waffle and you will not stand firm. Now, standing firm doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but what it does mean is you keep a short account of sin. And so if you and I want to be free, we need to stand firm. There's a second thing that you and I must do if we're going to maintain our spiritual freedom, and that is this. We must stop depending on our good works to get us into heaven. Now, this seems obvious to us, but you would be surprised at how many people in our culture today depend on their good works. I've shared my faith over the last 30 years, and probably 8 out of 10 people that I talk to, most of them, probably like you and me prior to salvation, we thought it was our good life that would get us into heaven. Now remember, the Judaizers were basically teaching this. They were saying, faith in Jesus is good, but it's not enough. You must keep the law of Moses and you must be circumcised. And what they were doing was they were mixing faith and works for salvation, and Paul is going to combat this, and he's going to give them here three reasons why they needed to stop depending on their good works to get them into heaven. And by the way, these reasons right here are ingenious. These are three reasons that we can use as we talk to our family members, as we talk to coworkers and friends, or maybe even our children who are depending on their good works. Reason number one, look at verses two through six. He says this, behold, he's kind of shocked here. I, Paul, say to you, Galatians, that if you receive circumcision, what the Judaizers were saying, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's the first reason why you can't depend on your good works to get you into heaven is because Christ will have no value to you at that point. Now, I know religious people will say Christ means everything to them, but what Paul is saying here is you cannot depend on Christ and good works at the same time for salvation. It is mutually exclusive. It's either all of Christ or all of good works. And you and I know if we depend on our good works to get into heaven, we're going to be weighed in the balance and found wanting. He says you cannot mix faith and works when it comes to salvation. Now, when it comes to sanctification, absolutely. Works are a byproduct of my faith alone in Jesus Christ. But when it comes to salvation, I cannot mix the two because you will have an explosion. In fact, I was reading this week about a high school in, I believe it was Hendersonville, Tennessee. It was during chemistry lab that the students were gathered and the teacher evidently did an experiment and they mixed boric acid with alcohol. And what happened was an explosion took place in the classroom and 17 students had to go to the hospital, including the teacher, and they evacuated the whole school. This happened last year in Tennessee. 
And I thought to myself, that's exactly what happens when you try to mix faith and works for salvation. You basically have an explosion. And Paul says, look, if you're going to get circumcised, if you're going to get snipped, and you're going to depend on that for salvation, as the Judaizers are saying, he says, Christ is of no value. Today, we would say it this way. Look, if you're depending on your baptism to get you into heaven, Christ is of no value. If you're depending on your church attendance to get you into heaven, Christ is no value. If you're depending on your good moral life, well, I'm a good person, I'm a good family man, I raise my kids to follow uh, the, the, the golden rule, whatever it is, Christ is of no value, he says here. Well, there's another reason why. In verse 3, he says, we cannot depend on our good works to get us into heaven, and that is this in verse 3, and I testify again, I'm going to say it again in a different way, every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Not only is Christ of no value, but he says, if you depend on your good works, he says, you got to keep the whole law. If you depend on circumcision, then you got to keep the whole law. In other words, what he's arguing against is Christianity a la carte. What is Christianity a la carte? It says, well, I can obey God in these areas and get to heaven. And he says, no, you got to look at the totality of the law. You cannot obey this law and ignore this law and expect to get into heaven. Why? Because God's law is a unit, James chapter 2 says, and he says, if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. It's like taking a hammer and walking up to a windshield of a car. If you hit that windshield at one point, what does it do to the rest of the windshield? It shatters it. And that's what happens is if you violate one part of the law, you're guilty of violating all of the law. And so people tend to pick and choose. I remember a couple of years ago, I left my house in New Jersey and I got to a stop sign right near the house and there were sort of like three or four cars. And I didn't want to wait. I'm like Pastor John. I get impatient. And so right to the right was a 7-Eleven, and there was a parking lot. And so I thought to myself, no one will know. And so I pulled in the parking lot, and as soon as I went to cross over, the blue lights came on. And I'll tell you what, in New Jersey, they're around everywhere. They're looking to get you with a ticket because they want to raise money. And I've noticed that in Lexington, too. They're all around as well. And so he pulled me over, and... He says, do you know what you did? I said, yes, officer, I know what I did. Now, imagine if I said to the police officer, excuse me, officer, I know that I shouldn't have cut across this parking lot, but officer, you don't understand. Last year, I didn't violate any traffic laws at all. I stopped at all stop signs. I didn't run any red lights. And by the way, officer, I'm a good husband. I'm a good family man, and I treat people with respect. What do you think the officer would have said to me? He would have said, listen, dude, you're one fry short of a Happy Meal. You're getting a ticket. Why? Because, listen, it doesn't matter whether I've kept all those other laws and I've been a good citizen. I violated the law at that point, and I'm guilty. And Paul says here, look, if you're going to depend on circumcision, then you're required to keep the whole law. And the fact of the matter is, none of us can keep all of the law of God. So what I tell a non-believer is, if you want to get to heaven by your good life, you could technically get to heaven by your good life, but you got to keep God's law perfectly. And you and I know that we can't do that. Well, he gives one other reason why we can't depend on our good works to get us into heaven. He says in verse 4, if you do, if you are circumcised, 
You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Paul says here, if you depend on the law to get into heaven, he says, you have fallen from grace. Now, I don't believe here he's talking about loss of salvation. There are other passages that would seem to indicate you could lose your salvation, but this is not one of them. What Paul is saying here is you are no longer depending on grace as the sole means in order to get to heaven. You have fallen from grace in that you are not depending on grace to get you into heaven. Grace is simply God giving you what you don't deserve, and that's why grace and works are mutually exclusive. Work says, I can earn it. Grace says, you can't earn it, and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. That's why we say with grace, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. And so he says here, if you depend on circumcision and you try to get right with God by keeping his law, he says, you have been cut off from Christ. You are no longer depending on grace anymore to be saved. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, anyone who depends on their good works, he says, grace no longer is grace. And so here's the principle, people. If you and I want to be free spiritually, we cannot depend on our good works for salvation. Now, most of you here have been well taught over the years. You know salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and it's by grace. It's not by works. But listen, there's people out there in our community, people in the world, most of them are under the tyranny of trying to earn their way to heaven. And you and I have the message of hope. We have the message of grace that can set them free to say, look, you don't have to second guess whether you're going to have eternal life. When I talk to people and I ask them, if you die, do you know for certain you're going to go to heaven? Most of them would say, I don't have assurance. I don't know. And here's the reason why, because they don't know if they've been good enough. But see, that's the tyranny and the bondage of trying to earn your way to heaven. You see, we don't realize, we don't truly realize the freedom that Christianity offers. Because if you study all the world religions, they are systems of bondage. They are systems of do this and do this and don't do this. And some of them don't even believe in the eternal life that you and I talk about. But they are systems that shackle people. They don't give them freedom. You say, Mike, is there any hope? Yes, there is. Look at verse 5. From the tyranny of depending on good works, he says this, for we through the Spirit, notice it's the Holy Spirit that saves us. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. You and I could not be saved apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. How does God draw us? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He says, we through the Spirit, by faith, there it is, not works, but by faith, are awaiting for the hope of righteousness. See, there's the hope. I don't have to depend on my good works to get me into heaven. God offers me freedom. He offers me hope. And the hope is this. I can't get in based on my righteousness. I get in based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, to help you visualize this, as I do, I like to show you visuals. These are the three great acts of imputation in the Bible. Adam's sin, when he sinned, his sin being the head of the human race, was imputed to the human race. So you and I are born sinners, and then as we get older and we reach that age of accountability, we commit our own sin. So we're doomed. Well, what happens is 
When Christ died, man's sin was imputed to Christ. He bore our sin on the cross. And then when we accept Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to man. And so you have the three great acts of imputation. Adam's sin imputed to us, our sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to man. Notice this other slide over here. You'll notice here, Christ, when he died on the cross, it says that our guilt was transferred to him and his righteousness was imputed to you and I so that when God sees us, he sees us through rose-colored glasses. He sees us through a spiritual filter. And here's the good news. When I stand before God on the day of judgment, I'm getting to heaven not on the basis of my performance. I'm getting into heaven on the basis of his performance. You see, God treats me as he treats his son. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He never violated it at one point. And when I trust in Jesus, what God does is he takes Jesus' perfect record and he credits it to my account. That word credit is used of a bank account whereby money is deposited into your account. You know what God did? He deposited his righteousness into your spiritual bank account so that you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when I stand before God, if I'm not clothed in Jesus' righteousness, I'm in trouble. See, here's what I tell people. On the day of judgment, you're either going to stand before God in your own righteousness, which the Bible says in Isaiah is like filthy rags, or you're going to stand before God in his righteousness. I told a guy yesterday, I preached this Friday at uh, the Veterans. I go once a month. And as I was getting into my car, a gentleman walked up to me. He said, uh, he said I forgot to get you to sign my paper. And I knew it was a divine appointment, and I said to him, what's your name? And we talked, and I said, can I ask you a question? Do you know if you're going to heaven or not? He said, no, I don't think I am. I'm not sure. I said, what do you think you got to do to get there? And he said to me, you got to love God with all your heart. And I said this to him, have you loved him perfectly with all your heart? He said, well, you can't do that. I said, exactly. I said, that's why you need Jesus' perfect righteousness. And I went on to explain how Jesus died for him, and if he repented of his sin and he trusted in Jesus Christ, he would have eternal life. But listen, he says, look at verse 5, we are awaiting the hope of righteousness. That's our hope. When we trust in Jesus, we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And listen, that's what gives me hope. That's the hope of the gospel that we present to other people is you don't have to stand before God on the basis of your righteousness. And by the way, people are looking for hope. I know some people turn it away, but this came home to me this week. I peruse the internet and I read all the time. And I read about a dietician this week, Tara Condell. You'll notice her picture up on the screen, beautiful girl. The article was very, very sad. It says that she was a dietician in New York City. And she hung herself in her apartment this week. Very young girl. And here is what she said. Of course, she said goodbye to her mother, which is terrible and tragic. But she said this, quote, I hate the word bye, but see you later maybe, question mark. I have written this note several times in my head for over a decade, and this one finally feels right. No edits, no overthinking. And then here's what she said. I have accepted hope is nothing more than delayed disappointment, end quote. Notice what she said. I have accepted that hope is nothing more than delayed disappointment. See, she's been disappointed, disappointed, but unfortunately she never heard about the hope that Jesus Christ offers through the gospel. 
That's the hope that God gives us. And that's the hope we need to proclaim because look what he says in verse 6. Again, we cannot depend on circumcision. We cannot depend on our good life to get us into heaven. He says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Circumcision is not the issue, Paul says. He says it's faith that is saving faith working through love. When I'm saved by faith, it expresses itself in loving other people. That's one of the evidences. But notice he says circumcision and uncircumcision is not the issue. So he's telling basically the Galatians, don't listen to the Judaizers. Circumcision's not the issue. Now, God instituted circumcision in the Old Testament. It was a good thing. God gave it to Abraham when he made the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with Israel. Just because you were circumcised as a male does not mean you were automatically saved. Remember John the Baptist confronted that mentality? He said, listen, don't think because you're Abraham's children, you're going to heaven. He said, God could raise up people from these stones. See, they thought it was circumcision. God instituted circumcision. It was good, but listen carefully. It was never intended to save a person. It was an outward sign of the covenant that God made with Israel. You know what the outward sign today is? Baptism has replaced circumcision. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's an outward sign of the inward faith that you and I have. But what the Jews did was they used circumcision as a false security, just like people today say, well, I'm part of the Lutheran church, I'm part of this Protestant church, I'm part of this Catholic church, I was raised in a Christian home, I was baptized as an infant, I went to a Greg Laurie crusade and I walked the aisle. Listen, we have our false securities today. And he says, listen, circumcision is not the issue. Today we do it for medical reasons, but we don't depend on it to be saved. And so here's his point. If you want to be free, don't depend on your good works to get you into heaven. And listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you in love, your good life isn't going to get you in. And you better examine your heart to make sure that you are resting on the firm foundation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for you and rose from the dead. And if you don't have that firm foundation that you're trusting in Him alone, the Bible says you're going to be eternally separated from God. And listen, God doesn't want that for you. I don't want that for you. None of us want that for you. And here's what I often tell people. When they're depending on their good works, you know, sometimes people don't grab the picture. Illustrations help. I say this to them. Imagine a person who's $50,000 in debt. Here's a young person. They've gotten themselves into debt. Irresponsible spending. $40,000, $50,000. By the way, just as a footnote, they say the average American carries $7,000 to $8,000 in credit card debt. But imagine $50,000 in credit card debt because of irresponsible spending. And what I tell that person is this, imagine if a rich uncle comes along and he says, look, I know you've been irresponsible, you've totally been wasteful, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to go ahead and write a check today and I'm going to pay off your credit card paid in full. He says, would you like that? Imagine if that young person said, you know what, I appreciate the offer to pay off my debt, even though I've been irresponsible. I really appreciate that, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to pay it off myself. Now, how many of you would allow that rich uncle to pay off your credit card debt? Raise your hand. I'm the first one. I would allow my uncle to pay it off. Some people would say, no, I got into the mess. I'm going to pay it off myself. Well, that's a picture of salvation. The Bible says you and I have a sin debt. 
We can never pay God back. It's more than $50,000. We have a sin debt. And you know what? Jesus is the rich uncle. He comes along and he says, you know what? You've been You've been irresponsible. You've lived a wicked, sinful life. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Out of grace and love, I'm going to pay your sin debt off in full. And you know what a lot of people do? They say, Jesus, thank you, but no thank you. I'm going to pay the debt off myself. And that's a picture of them earning their salvation. When I say that to people, the light goes off. Because they realize you're either going to allow Jesus to pay the debt off, or you're going to pay it off yourself. Well, there's a third way that you and I can be free and walk in that freedom, and that is this. Avoid negative influences in your life. Avoid negative influences in your life. Now, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to warn them against these Judaizers, and it would extend beyond just the Judaizers to anyone who influences us in a negative way. Because listen carefully, negative influences will often lead us into bondage. And I think we could all give stories here of how people have negatively impacted us. Notice, if you will, verse 7. He says to the Galatians, using an analogy of a race, you are running well. And by the way, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. As soon as you got saved, you entered the race. Now, here's the question. What kind of runner are you? You're either running with a maximum effort or you're loafing or you've walked off the tracks. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, we know it was the Judaizers. They were trying to get them running off the track, stop running. In fact, I was reading this week. It was kind of humorous. You'll notice the picture up on the screen here. You'll notice the guy on the right. He's from University of Oregon. The guy on the left is from University of Washington. And this guy in Oregon shirt, he was clearly going to win the race. He was way ahead. And he took his eyes off the finish line. And you know what he did? He got enamored with his victory that he supposedly was going to get. And as he's running towards the victory line, he starts looking at the crowd and he starts waving at him. And you know what happened? The guy from Washington surpassed him and he won the race. And you know, that's exactly what happens to us. If we're not careful, people can influence us in a negative way and they keep us from running or they slow us down. Look what he says in verse eight. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. This didn't come from God, this theology, this doctrine. And then he uses another analogy, not a race, but he uses here leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, you and I know that leaven permeates, it influences, and you and I know yeast is what makes dough rise. And in the Bible, leaven is often used of negative influence. It's used of false doctrine. And he's saying this is what false doctrine does in the church is it permeates and it infects. It's like gangrene. And by the way, you know how they use yeast in that day? We have packets today. My daughter has sometimes when I'm at the grocery store, she'll say, Dad, can you pick up a little thing of yeast? I go, what's that? What does that look like? So she'll take a picture and show me and I got to go get it. You know what they would do? They would pinch off a little piece of dough and they would sit it there and they'd let it ferment for a period of time. And they'd take off that little piece of fermented dough and they'd put it into a new batch of dough and that would be the leaven that would make the dough rise. And he says their error is going to cause them to be infected by this. Notice what he says in verse 10. I have confidence in you Galatians that in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. 
but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. He says, look, I have confidence. We didn't know how he had confidence, but maybe he said this as a positive thing to say, look, I know you're going to stand on the true gospel and you're not going to listen to these false teachers because they're going to be judged. And then he says this, he's answering an accusation in verse 11, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Evidently, the Judaizers were saying, well, Paul preaches circumcision. They were lying, trying to deceive the Galatians. And he says, wait a minute, I'm not preaching circumcision. If I was, why am I persecuted? He says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. See, listen carefully. Whenever you add works to the gospel, you eliminate the stumbling block of the cross. Why is the cross a stumbling block? Why do people hate Jesus in our culture? You could talk about God at all the award ceremonies. I want to thank God. As soon as you mention the name Jesus, it cuts a swath. Because listen, that name is powerful. And the cross is a stumbling block to people. And here's why. Because it strikes a blow at our pride. We cannot do anything to merit salvation. And because there is power in the name of Jesus, people don't like the cross. It is a stumbling block. And Paul says, look, if I'm preaching a work salvation, I've eliminated the offense of the cross. And then he says something here real staggering, very strong language. He says, I wish, verse 12, that those who are troubling you, the Judaizers, would even mutilate or castrate themselves. Now, did he just say that? You say, what? Let me tell you what he's saying with being tasteful. He's saying if they want to go to circumcision, why don't they just go the whole way and cut it off? You say, this is the Apostle Paul? This is loving? I thought this was unchristlike. No, no, listen. He's so passionate about the gospel not being corrupted, he says, why don't they just cut it all off? And here's the imagery. Since they've emasculated the gospel by teaching a work salvation... Why don't they just go ahead and emasculate themselves? You see the parallel there. He's very, very strong. And so here's the principle. You and I must be careful about the influences in our life if we're going to have freedom. We all have to be on guard. Who we date, who we marry, even our parents, our relatives. And again, we should have good relationships and we should do everything we can to broker healthy relationships. But some people are so toxic, what they do is they pull us away from God. I've dealt with two people this week who are involved in bad relationships, and it's always eight out of ten times it's dating relationships. That person they're dating is not saved, they're not growing, and what happens is it pulls them away from God. One of my friends in New Jersey, his dad and his mother, they were so toxic in his marriage with his children and their grandchildren, he finally had to say, you know what, dad, I love you and I want a relationship with you and mom, but because you are so divisive and so toxic, he had to cut that relationship off with his father. Now, that's an extreme. I'm not saying we always do that. And by the way, don't think that in terms of your marriage. You say, well, my partner's toxic. I'm cutting them out. No, the Bible says if you're married to a non-believer, stay married to the non-believer if they want to stay. And if your marriage is hard, God wants you to hunker down. There's some things we cannot get away from. But if there's something in your life, your computer, maybe you have a love relationship with your computer, you make love to your computer too much. You make love to your television too much. You make love to social media too much. And you know what? That love relationship is hindering your walk with God. 
Cut it off. Well, there's one final point for this morning. Serve others in love if you want to be free. The way to be free, the way to have joy is to get out of yourself and to serve other people. Notice, if you will, verse 13. He says, for you Galatians were called to freedom. He's really reiterating what he said in verse 1. You're called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, your fallen nature. But through love, here it is, serve one another. You see, in Christ, we are forgiven. We are saved. We have freedom. But you know what? If we're not careful, we can develop a mentality. Well, now that I'm free in Christ, I can do whatever I want. Hyper grace. I'm forgiven so I can sin. And Paul says to the Galatians, no, you're not free to live for indulging the flesh, your fallen nature. You are free now to serve other people. Why? Because look at verse 14. He says, for the whole law, that is the Old Testament and even the New Testament, is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summarized all of the laws. You could distill them down to two, love God and love other people. And he's saying, look, if you and I are obeying the law, even though we are free in Christ, we're going to love our neighbor as ourself. But in verse 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. They were committing Christian cannibalism, backbiting, gossip, slander, They were taking their freedom in Christ, and rather than loving and serving other people, they were using it for themselves, and they were being selfish. And listen, you and I, we don't have to be taught to love ourselves. We naturally do that. And by the way, there is some legitimacy to that. It's instinctive. How many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Why did you brush your teeth? Because you wanted to have a clean mouth, And you also wanted to be able to interact with people at church today, right? I mean, you've met people at church, right? Uh, Saul has slain his, or David has slain his thousands, but Saul is ten thousands, right? People slay you. How many of you showered this morning? Why? Because you want to be clean. This week, I saw a commercial at Sonic. Deep-fried Oreos. You ever seen those? I said to my wife Friday night, it's time to go. (laughs) You know why I did that? Because I love myself. Because I had an urge for an Oreo. And I love myself. And I said, I want to fulfill that desire. Nothing wrong with those desires. But here's where the problem comes. Christ set me free so that I would be other-centered, that I would serve other people, And you know what we have to do in the church today? We have to get out of this me mentality. It's about my needs. It's about my hurts. It's about my wants. And you know what? People that are so focused on themselves, sometimes they're the most miserable people. If you want to be set free and you want to have joy in your life, serve other people. You can't have a mentality that says, I'm here to be served rather than serve. And imagine a church where everyone got involved using their gifts and serving one another. In fact, watch this Me Church video as we close. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. 
This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guy, right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. Now listen, isn't that true? A lot of churches today, it's about me, myself, and I. Us four, no more, shut the door. So you want to be free? Paul says you got to do four things. Number one, stand firm on your freedom. Number two, stop depending on your good works to get you into heaven. Number three, you need to avoid negative influences in your life. And then finally, serve others in love. Who are you serving this morning? Now, next week, we're going to look at the final way to be free, and that is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us in Galatians, very strong, strong message to us about salvation by grace alone in Christ. Lord, teach us to walk in that sufficiency, to walk in that victory, to take our stand in the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Maybe God has spoken to you this morning. Maybe there's a toxic relationship you're involved with. Maybe you're not free. Maybe you've kind of slipped back into your old ways. You've gotten away from the Bible. You've gotten away from prayer. You may be coming on Sunday morning, but the thrill is gone. You're not walking with Jesus like you once used to. God has better things for you. He wants you to walk in victory. And so... Would you this morning do business with God? Whatever God has spoken to you about this morning, would you deal with God about that and if necessary, repent? Let's just take a minute to do that. Father, I pray for those who may be listening and who will listen to this message on radio and on television, if you're listening and you're trusting in your good works to get you into heaven, all you got to do is say, Jesus, I can't save myself, but I do believe you died for me and rose from the dead. And I repent of my sin and I trust in you alone for salvation. Come into my life, Jesus. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Make me a new person. In Jesus' name, amen.